Thanks for tuning in to the IGM podcast. We're so glad you've decided to explore God's word with us. We look forward to connecting with you in email at infointegritygm.com or online at our website, www.integritygm.com. We hope this podcast encourages you to grow in the knowledge of God through his word. Be blessed. Praise the Lord in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Today we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I have Alan with me today and we're going to continue the flow of thought as we were studying chapters 9, 10, and now 11. Again, I emphasize this every time that we, almost every time that we start to study God's Word, the chapter and the verses are added later. They are not inspired by God. They can become tools of finding and locating passages of Scripture, but when we look at the flow of thought, sometimes the chapters break up the flow of thought, and that's something that we do not want to do when we're trying to establish original intent of Scripture. So in chapter 9, we see this beautiful understanding of a servant of Christ and how we should operate in ministering the gospel. Chapter 10 is to avoid Israel's mistakes. So one is from the positive standpoint, chapter 9, and then chapter 10 is from a negative standpoint that we can learn from the example of others of what not to do. And we see this continual flow of thought of how we should live as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we come to chapter 11, that thought is going to continue in the understanding of proper way to worship God within a corporate gathering together. Worship should be everything that we do, but there's also a time that we gather in corporate worship where we come together as one body to worship the Lord. We're living in a culture today that we don't want any rules or any, anyone to tell us how we should do this. And if someone says you have to do this or you shouldn't do this, then we say that's legalism. And that's not what true legalism from a biblical perspective is. There is rules. There are things we should do, we shouldn't do. There are things that we could do, but because we want to be a witness of the gospel to people outside of the church, we don't do them. And to edify the body, we don't do them. And so we always have to keep in mind, like we ended up the last chapter, it is God first, ministering and glorifying God first, ministering to others second, and then we always come last, that in fact, we die to ourselves daily. Now, chapter 11, verse 1, I'm going to read this verse. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. So in chapter 9, he showed us what we should do from the positive standpoint. Chapter 10, learn from Israel's mistake from the negative standpoint to stay away from that. And now he is making this bold statement that some people would consider arrogant and prideful. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate my life as I imitate the life of Christ. When we look at this, it is contrary, Alan, to most sermons that we hear. We hear people say, do not put your eyes on me, but put it on Christ. And I understand fully what they're saying. What they're saying is that man will fail you, but Christ will never fail you. However, Paul is putting a new understanding on that. He is saying, you should put your eyes upon me. He is the one that founded the church at Corinth. He's the one that spent a year and a half there discipling them in the things of God. He taught them the word of God. He lived the life before him, a life of sacrifice, a life of giving up his rights so that he could bring the gospel to them. He even many times worked with his own hands in order to provide sustenance for his own life. And, and in much of the time in which he's spreading the gospel, he's not wanting to give anyone the ability to criticize what he's doing because he wants to glorify Christ. He is not saying, don't look at me, only look at Christ. He is saying, look at me, imitate my life, as I imitate the life of Christ. So he's not separating the two, but what he is doing, 
He's combining the two. And you and I should be able to say the same thing to a person that is weaker in the faith or young, younger in the faith and maybe a baby believer, baby Christian, and to be able to look at them and say, look at my life. I'm not a perfect individual, but I do stand complete in the Messiah and watch my life imitate me as I imitate the Messiah. Paul does not separate the two, he connects the two. And he is saying to the Corinthian congregation, as long as I am following the Messiah, then you can follow me as I follow him. And it's uh, quite incredible, it's quite convicting when you think about it, because when you see these words, you start thinking, wow, the responsibility that comes with a statement like that. Yeah, I was just thinking that, Scott, as you're, you're saying this, and I think something we lack, and we've talked about this a little bit, you know, in the Western church is discipleship. And, and I do understand I've heard that from the pulpit a lot of times. And I think if you've seen some things or seen pastors, ministers, um, even televangelists, whatever it is, a lot of us have seen ministers that have failed, that have fallen away, that have done something. And, and it's almost, you can, you can take that mentality, you know, look at Christ, not me, and that's kind of an easy way out, right? So yes. you can say, you know, you're sort of saying, don't follow me, I could mess up. You know, you don't really take ownership of, especially mm-hmm. Paul as a, an apostle, a church founder, a shepherd, mm-hmm. you know, all of these things that he was, you can see that he really owns it in this verse. And he's, he's taking saying, responsibility yeah, he's, for his and, faith. Yeah, and I, and I agree with, you know, yeah, Jesus is who we look to. He's the, the one that's only one that's perfect, and we're going to be perfect with him in heaven. But at the same time, Paul's saying, I'm owning my calling. I'm owning what God has, has called me mm-hmm. to be and what he's doing inside of me through Christ. And as a believer, we have that same spirit in us that Paul has, where we can say, as I follow Christ, follow me. He doesn't say, just follow me blindly. Right. He does preface it by, as I follow Christ. But with that statement, he's kind of inferring that he's going to do that, and he's not making it an easy escape. Well, I told you not to watch me, because I know I would mess up. Or, But no, he's really taking an ownership, which is, is a scary thing to do, but it's something that I think that God's calling yes. us to do. I, I think you can have two truths that exist at the same time, seem to be opposite and both be true. Say in Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Yeshua, on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith. So the writer is saying there, put your eyes on him. Here, Paul is saying, put your eyes on me as I put my eyes on the Messiah. Follow me as I follow him. I'm not so sure that you find the principle of a person that is to be a shepherd or a leader ever saying, don't look at me, only look at him. It should bring a lot of conviction and we should take ownership of our own faith to be able to say to people, I'm not perfect, I do sin, I'm not in bondage to sin, but I stand complete in the Messiah and you can follow me as I follow him. We should be able to say that. And when we do say that, there is a responsibility that comes upon us that's incredible. I am a shepherd. Can you imagine a shepherd of sheep saying to the sheep, don't follow me? Yeah, that's that's a misnomer, yeah. It's something that a shepherd could never say. What does the word pastor mean? The word pastor comes from shepherd. It's a, a synonym, those two words. So... A shepherd of a congregation, of a community of faith, an overseer or an elder that is looking out for the spiritual growth of a congregation has to say, follow me as I follow him. And I don't believe in any way that that is saying that they never make mistakes or they don't ever sin. But it is saying that I am consistent in my walk with the Lord. And my eyes are on him, and my life is dedicated to him, and I'm not in bondage to sin, I'm in bondage to him. And the path that I am walking is a path that you can go as well. And I'm going to follow him, and follow me as I'm following him. It's a powerful statement that should bring a lot of humility within anyone that's discipling someone else. You don't even have to be a pastor 
in this sense. If you're discipling someone as a believer and have brought someone to the faith and you're taking them through the Word of God and you're spending time with them, praying with them, this applies to you that you should be able to say, follow me as I follow Christ. But I, I think, too, with following Christ, and like you mentioned, you know, we are going to make mistakes, and people and pastors and shepherds, you know, in this natural world are going to make mistakes. But as a disciple, younger Christians, younger people in the faith, unbelievers need to see how you react in those mistakes. And so you're still following Christ. If you mess up, you do something. You're not in bondage, but you do make a mistake. How do you react to that? And I think that's a piece where, you know, confess your sins to, to one another, Part of that is for you, but the other part of that is for the other person to say, hey, Scott struggled with this. This is how he dealt with it, and he saw that, and then the Lord corrected him. You know, because you can imagine if you're if you are a younger Christian or you're you're discipling a younger Christian, and they're going through struggles, they're they're working through it. What God is doing in their life, you know, it's going to be a few bumps and and things right at the beginning, especially along the way. So. How do they deal with that? And they need to see a shepherd showing them, okay, this person isn't perfect as well, but they are my shepherd, and this is how they dealt with it. They need to see that too. And Paul can still show that, you know, because he's still following Christ. If Paul did make a mistake and he could tell this church at Corinth, this was wrong, you know, apologize, and this is what we're going to do to get it right. So there's a, yeah, it's a real deep deep passage when you think about it. It's a statement that probably not any believer should ever forget Mm -hmm. what Paul says here. It's that profound. A baby has to learn to sit up. A baby has to learn to stand up. A baby believer has to take their first step. They've got to learn to walk. They've got to learn to run. And when they run, they're going to fall and they're going to get hurt. But they have to be able to get up. A person that has gone before them that's watching them, overseeing them. It doesn't mean that they will never fall, but they look back at that baby and they know how to help them Mm -hmm. because they've gone through these experiences themselves and they're able to show them the right way. In the same way spiritually, we look back at baby believers, baby disciples in Christ, and we say to them, this is the way, follow me, as I follow the Messiah. It's powerful and we we should never forget it. Let's go on to verse two. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them unto you. So the Corinthian congregation remembers Paul. Now we also know that there are some divisions going on within this congregation. If we go all the way back to chapter one, we see these divisions, but there are people that are there that remember that were probably there from the beginning, how Paul founded this community of faith, discipled them, and they remember Paul in everything and hold firmly to the traditions. Now, a lot of people think that the word traditions is a negative or a bad word. But here, Paul is saying that they hold firmly to the traditions. So what is happening here? As Paul is discipling them in the things of God, the principle from God's word of how to live in a new covenant context, there are traditions that are being established upon God's word. And he's teaching them how to do things in a proper way. And one of these traditions that we're going to look at of of what he taught them is something that we're about to read about in this passage. Traditions based upon man's philosophy or something that is secondary from God's word is a negative tradition. But a tradition that is based upon the word of God is a wonderful thing. And I believe with everything within me that the traditions that Paul is establishing for the churches are biblical principles in which he is establishing within this community of faith. So tradition here is not a bad word, just like the word religion in Jacob, James's letter, is not a bad word as well. Sometimes we use the word religion. We don't believe in religion. However, Jacob or James uses this word in a positive sense. What is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this. 
And he goes on to list about visiting orphans and widows in their distress and keeping yourself unstained from this world. You see this where a word can be used in a negative sense, but it can also be used in a positive sense. In the same way, the word tradition, if it's based upon the principles of God's word, is a powerful thing. But there are a lot of traditions that we have that do not have their background in the Word of God. They're man-made traditions. That's a negative sense. So Paul is establishing traditions with these new believers based upon God's Word. Yeah, one thing I think about this with Paul, when you say traditions, I think of Paul as a, a Pharisee. God's infinite wisdom whatever the reasoning, the Jewish faith up until then, there was a lot of traditions, a lot of feasts, a lot of things that were followed that God had established that were not bad things for the Jewish people, right? He'd he'd commanded them to do some of these things. You know, some of them got away from that and got skewed. But Paul, you know, knowing this, I'm, I'm sure God had revealed to him these traditions, some of them that he had established were good. And this crosses over into the New Covenant. Yes, he came out of a Pharisaic movement that embraced the oral law. He came through Gamaliel, which is the house of Hillel, and their oral law. And so tradition was everything in his former background. Today, about 80% of the traditions of the oral law have very little to do with the Word of God. And you see Jesus coming against traditions but he comes against traditions that are not based upon God's word. And he does that by presenting the word of God to contradict that tradition. Mm -hmm. Now at this point within Paul's life, he understands and he always knew that traditions can be powerful if they're coming from true principles within God's word. And so in our our community of faith, we, we establish traditions. We do. I remember growing up, my father would always say, Can you stand for the reading of God's word? Now, do you have to stand every time? No. But for him, it was a tradition that goes back to Nehemiah chapter 8, that when they read from the law of God, everyone stood in respect for God's word. It wasn't that my father was saying, you have to stand. He was saying, would you stand for the reading of God's word out of respect? God's word is about to be proclaimed to you and taught to you. That is a good tradition, I believe. It becomes a bad tradition if you have to do it every time. So there's a lot of traditions, say in the rabbinical system, under the oral law, you have to rock back and forth in order to pray. That's not based upon God's word. You have to put a kippah, a yarmulke on your head in order to pray or to go into a synagogue. That's not based upon God's word. That is a man-made tradition coming out of the oral law. Paul came out of that. And now his traditions are fully and completely based upon God's word. That's the context that I believe that Paul is writing about these traditions. Verse 3, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. That is scripturally based. That is biblically based. And the man is the head of a woman. That is biblically based. That's very hard in Western culture today. They understand the first principle, but they want to throw away the second principle. And God is the head of the Messiah. There is a hierarchy within our understanding of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we understand that the Son submitted every action, everything about his life to the will of the Father and completeness in order to bring about this great salvation. Remember him in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will be done, but thy will be done. He's crying out, Father, is there any way that this cup can pass from me? What he's about to go through, nevertheless, not my will be done, let your will be done. So when we look at this, and God is the head of the Messiah, the Son. He is the one that is giving the Son He is the one that is fulfilling his salvation through the Son. And so we see these scriptural principles that are very clear to understand within God's Word. The first one's not difficult for us in a Western culture. The third one is not difficult. It is the second one that causes us a problem, and we try to throw it away and say that's just something that is cultural. But let's continue. 
Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. Now we're going to have to go through the whole context and get down to verse 15 to really understand what is being said here. And this is where the flow of thought is so important. So I'm going to continue to read all the way down to verse 15. But every woman who has her head covered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. And we'll come back to that, but that's very significant. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and the glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? Verse 15. But if a woman has long hair, it is glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Now let's stop there. Verses 14 and 15 really are getting to the essence of this whole passage of what is proper when they come together, what is a tradition that is based upon God's word, what represents the body of the Messiah in a proper way when we gather corporately to worship God. Verses 14 and 15 again. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. What we're dealing with here in a city like Corinth, and I'm going to try to set the cultural context of the city of Corinth, and we did this at the beginning in the introduction. You had temples within Corinth, and within any pagan temple of that day, one of the aspects of worship, of how they worshiped, was temple prostitution. And when a girl was at the temple, there were several ways that a girl could go to a temple. And let me talk about two of them. To serve as a prostitute. I'll talk about several of them. They could be sold to the temple. They could be given to the temple by the family as an offering to that God to receive blessings. Also, if a woman's husband died, then the options that they had, one of the options that that woman had, because she could be completely destitute at that time, not able to go back to her family, nobody else, probably a situation that others would not want to marry her, is that she would go to the temple, she would have her head shaved. Why would her head be shaved? Why would her hair, her covering, be taken off of her? Because it was a sign she had no covering. In that culture, a woman's covering was her father or her husband. She did not have identity on her own. And so here we look at this culture. So the significance of a, a lady in the community of faith that would go and shave her head and cut her hair, her long hair, it would be symbolic of saying, I have no covering. I don't have any authority over me. I am independent and no one's going to tell me what to do. I stand on my own. 
And that is not proper within the body of the Messiah. It's not proper if she has a husband. It's not proper if she has a father. When she looks at this and she cuts her hair, which her father in that culture would never allow her to do, her husband would not allow her to do, but as she would shave her head or cut her hair really short to take off of her covering, what she is saying in that culture, I'm independent, I'm standing alone, I don't need anybody. And this is what Paul is dealing with. In the same way, for a man to grow long hair like a woman, the whole context is like a woman, because in that day, women did not cut their hair. To grow long hair as a woman would be unnatural. It would not be something that would be appropriate for a man. In this passage of Scripture, it is teaching headship. Going back again, to verse 3. Let me read these verses here. Something that we fight with, this second statement here. Christ is the head of every man. That as men, we submit to the authority of the Messiah as the Messiah submits to the authority of his Father. We should be leaders in our homes, in our families, in our marriages, in society. Now, I know I'm talking primarily to a Western audience that doesn't understand these principles and would say that this is bigoted. And you can call me whatever you want. This is the principles within God's word. Christ, the Messiah, submitted himself and everything to the Father. We, as men, submit ourselves to the Messiah as believers and disciples of him. And as men of God, our wives should submit or our daughters submit to our authority as men. As we follow him and submit to him, they should submit to us. And the whole covering of the head is symbolic or culturally significant to that culture of what would be appropriate and what would not be appropriate as they gather together. And so this tradition, based upon these principles within God's Word, had a lot of significance for the church at Corinth. And I hope everybody's hearing what I'm saying. And now people say, well, it doesn't have any significance for us today. And also, I want to say the hair is the covering contextually. It's not taking something else and putting it on top of your hair. Now, some cultures do that because ladies have short, short hair, and they'll take a cloth and put it over their head to show an act of submission. It is a submission to their fathers or to their husbands that I'm under authority. They're doing this because of the angels. And people debate of what that means because... The angels are in submission to God, so we should be in submission to God. But some feel like that because in our corporate worship, angels are there as well. And we should not do this in an improper way because of the presence of angels that are all around us that understand submissiveness to God. They understand the principle of submissiveness. Some people say this is all cultural. It doesn't have anything to do with us today. And I would say, yes, it does. The principle has something to do with us today. And I'll explain it. And I'll get some people upset with me here. In any society, at any time, in any culture I've ever lived in, when women want to establish their independence from men, one of the elements in which they do is they cut their hair short. To say, I can be like a man, I am independent of a man, and so I'm my own individual, and not any man's going to tell me what to do. That's not for every woman in the West that cuts their hair short. But I definitely, living in India for 11 years, understand that principle. That when New India starts to develop, and modernism, and independence of women from men, and all what begins to happen? They began to cut their hair very short to show that I am a modern woman and I'm independent and I have my own career and my own future and my own desires of what I want to do independent of anybody else. And again, I want to emphasize that's not for every woman that cuts their hair short. That is not their mindset. 
In Corinth, it would have been the cultural mindset for a lady that did that. That would also associate with the temple prostitutes. That says, I have no covering. They would shave their heads. Or they would be forced to shave their heads by the temple priest. When you look at that, it is an aspect that we need to consider in Western culture about submissiveness of wives to their husband, women to men, daughters to their fathers, And by looking at the principle, the heart should always say, I'm not independent from my husband. I'm not independent from my father. I'm under my father. He is my covering. My husband is my covering. Man is the head of the woman. That's very important that we understand that. As we live in this pagan society and culture of today, they want to destroy that principle. And even within the church today, We're seeing, okay, marriage is a co-leadership, 50-50. No, the husband is the head of the wife. The wife is to submit herself to her husband as the church submits itself to the Messiah. Paul could not have used a stronger analogy than that analogy. We are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Everything that the Messiah did, he did for the church. That's how uh, husbands were to be servant leaders, but we are leaders. And the wife is to submit herself to her husband. These principles have not changed. They're not only bound by culture. They are biblical principles. And so there's not a 50-50 leadership within the marriage. The husband is the head. I'm going to say something here that's going to get a lot of people upset. There is not co-pastors within church, the husband and the wife. That's not a biblical principle. You will not see that as a precedent anywhere. Now, if they mean by this that she's pastoring the women and the children and you being used in that aspect, I understand that. But we never see women being placed in authority over men within the Bible anywhere except one place, and that was Deborah in the Old Covenant. And that, if you read that story, the men were so weak that they were not willing to step up and lead and take responsibility. And God made sure that no man would get credit for the victory that came through Deborah. So there is a principle there. When men do not step forward, then God will put a woman in a position of authority because the men are too weak. When I say co-leadership, co-pastors, if they're saying if they're ministering to the women and the children, yes. But pastors today should not be putting their wives in authority over men within the body of the Messiah. That's not a scriptural principle. Unless there's not a man in that congregation that can lead and oversee the other men. In the same way, within the home, that same principle is true. It's not a 50-50 leadership. Man is the head of his wife. And I know I'm going to be called a lot of different things for that. (laughs) But you're going to have to argue with God's Word. And you'll get a lot of theology coming from liberal professors and liberal churches. And when I say liberal, they don't really teach God's Word from biblical principles establishing their traditions. They have traditions and they try to proof text the Bible to fit that tradition. And God's Word is very clear on this. Man is the head over the woman. Yeah, two things struck me about this. Just even now as you're going through this, you know, when when he talks about Christ is the head of every man and and man is the head of woman and God is the head of Christ, you know, I think about the Trinity and I think it's something I won't fully understand or we may not fully understand until we get to heaven, but it's the three in one. You know, they're one, but they're three. But they all have the same mind. They all have the same mission, the same goal, right? And then when he's saying... They're one. Yeah, they're one. They cannot have... And yeah. so, so Paul is writing this to a body of believers. You know, we're, we're one in Christ together, right? Man and woman. And he kind of established that in verse 12. So we have this same goal, this same mindset, and, the, and we're one with the woman. But at the same time, God is the head over Christ and man is the head over yes. woman. So, so there is this co-thing there, but there's still the authority there's with the There's role distinctions. Yeah, and then yeah. also here, he's not, you know, he doesn't really mention husband and wife in this context. This is man and woman within the context of a body of believers. You know, he doesn't, in other 
places he calls out man and wife and husband yes. and wife. But to me, he's speaking here specifically to men and women in the context of worshiping right. together as a body, not necessarily in, in a matrimony sense and married to one another. But I'm glad you brought that up because sometimes we build a dichotomy between the, the house of God and our own house. Mm-hmm. And Paul never allows that to stand. In fact, everything breaks down when you do that. Mm -hmm. And so the same principle that we would have for the house of God is the same principles that we would have for our own house. In fact, when Paul is giving instructions about overseers and the qualifications of overseers, it's all about the family. If they cannot manage their own household well, how can they manage the house of God? And so once you make a dichotomy of the two and don't see that in both places the principle is being taught. And so I do see this as a principle, man and woman, of how God designed and how it works within the body of Christ. So if you make a dichotomy there, well, this is true within the church, but it's not true within my own family. Yeah. Think of the problems that you have established. If I might a man at home and I believe that I'm the head of my wife and that we're one and we're working together but there's role distinctions but then when I get to the body of Christ and then I have his wife as my authority and has been placed in authority over me there is a problem there's a breakdown of the principles in which God is teaching yeah and I think and me personally probably have mistakenly read this to to lean more towards the understanding of this as a husband and wife sort of thing. And I've separated kind of reverse where I saw that in the in the home and the, the husbands over the wife. And that's pretty clear in other passages. But this, yeah, this to me really sticks out is, is yeah, there's not a dichotomy in it. And that that same principle is applying to whatever was going on in Corinth, whatever disorder, dysfunction Paul was addressing here, you know, from a cultural and from a, you know, biblical traditional standpoint, it's the same principle. Right. And yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think if you took verse three here, that is what is being communicated. And in that culture, the shaving of the lady's head, the taking away of her covering was not proper. The proper message that was being sent about her relationship with her husband or her father within the body of Christ. Yeah. And uh, we have to be, we have, it is important, the messages that we send. And Paul is saying, these traditions that we have established, you are to remember these. And the principle that comes forth in verse 3 is something that we constantly have to ask. Are these principles alive within the body of the Messiah? Are these principles true within my own family as well. And I just, I just want to add something real quick because this probably did get a lot of people upset or, or some people upset. But I think when you look at that, that, that verse 3, Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of woman and God is the head of Christ, there's such a beauty in submitting to the authority and to the will and to the design of God. You know, Jesus Christ himself did it and he's glorified as the Son of God and he saw that. He saw what Christ, you know, God wanted to do as his son and submitted to that and followed that and the beauty that's in that, you know, and I think the beauty that can be in that to us submitting to Christ and his will and his role and what he's telling us to do in our life and also the beauty and the blessing that women have by submitting to the authority of the husband, of the male leadership, um, whatever that looks like, um, you know, that you're called to do. There's just there's a real beauty and a peace in that. And when you try to fight against that the same way we try to fight against what God's trying to do in our life, that's just when st- stuff starts going south. You lose your peace. You lose. You're just arguing. You're fighting an uphill battle. But when, you know, God, God's grace and his mercy, he gives us um, the ability to go through that and to work with us on that. But when you get it, it's just this peace that you can't explain. And, and it's incredible when you when you really say, God... What is your will? What are you saying to me? I'm going to submit to it. Now God can work with you. Now he can use you. Yes, and there is such an, and this is such an important issue, very relevant issue. And um, I think about when I was up in Kentucky, I had some lady leaders that were so incredible, so spiritually mature, so strong with the Lord. 
that were leaders in our congregation because we didn't have any men. And I remember the first time meeting with them, they were kind of embarrassed. I mean, these are godly women that were spiritually stronger than I was that was coming to be the pastor, the overseer of this congregation. They said, we want our men to step up and lead. We're praying for our, our men. But at that time, there wasn't that many men, and there wasn't men willing to step up and even teach at that point. And these women were fulfilling a biblical principle like Devorah, like Deborah, of stepping up and leading and being in leadership at a point until we could get men to step forward. And they were incredible women because they recognized these two principles active at the same time. They were very submissive to their husbands. They were very much under their husband's authority. They loved their husbands. They were fully ladies. Yet at the same time, we needed leadership and there was no men willing to step forward. They understood God working through their lives and speaking through their lives. And they were hard workers and they prayed and they, they prayed for me and I appreciated their leadership and their family to me today. I still look to them. Not in any way am I saying God cannot use women at all, but women that see the spiritual principle and what we're talking about will be used so much greater than a woman that's trying to fight against these principles. Another example, there was a, a uh, Dr. Ruth Bruce at uh, the university that I went to that was a college uh, back then, and she was fully a lady, a powerful uh, teacher, probably the most influential lady on the whole campus, not lady, person. She refused to get head of the department because she didn't want to embarrass her husband, who was also on staff at the college. She uh, would talk to me about submitting to her husband. She had these principles. She understood these principles. She was fully in agreement with what God was saying of what we're talking about here. And God was using her in such a powerful way. She had more influence on that campus more than the president, more than any other professor, more than any of the staff on the campus. She was being used by God in such an incredible way but not in any way did she want to see herself in authority over her husband. She had the right mentality. And she, did, she didn't accept a lot of things because she didn't want to embarrass her husband. She wanted to stay under the authority of her husband. The ladies that I dealt with up in Ratcliffe, Kentucky, they were leading, but they were leading and in submission to their husbands within their home. But their husbands were not willing to step forward within the congregation and to lead for many different reasons. And so as a lady recognizes these principles, God's going to use them in such powerful ways, probably many times beyond their husbands. My wife and I are one. We minister together. I am the head of my wife, but we're one ministering together. She doesn't have the title, if I'm pastoring a church, that she's a pastor and I'm a pastor. But her influence many times is greater than my influence because she recognizes these principles. If she tries to get outside of God's design for her life, then I believe her ministry is hindered. And I believe that with everything within me. I went to a seminary recently and I met this young lady and said, where do you study? And she said, this is what I'm studying. What do you feel your calling is? She said, I want to be a lead pastor within the church. That was her goal, that she would be the top lead pastor overseer of the church. And my heart just broke for her because I don't ever think that she will fully fulfill God's plan for her life because that's not what God designed her to be. People are gonna be angry at this. People are gonna get upset with this. That's okay. We're gonna teach it as Paul is teaching it according to original intent of what is being said here. And in verse three, I'm gonna read it one more time. But I want you to understand that the Messiah 
is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ, of the Messiah. These principles are true in every aspect of life. And when we're talking about this right now, I'm reminded of the the flow of thought of this, and you go back to chapter 9, Paul 9.23, I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. So Paul's giving up everything. He's giving up his rights. Um, And this flows over, I think, and Scott, you tell me if I'm wrong, to this 11, you know, where, yeah, like this is a hard cultural conversation right now in 2020 to bring this up. But Paul's sitting here saying, I'm giving up my rights this is what Christ is That's calling That's what made him do. a powerful minister. Exactly. Giving up his rights. He gave them up. And then, and then if you t- apply that to, you know, this, this chapter 11 where he's establishing what God's order is and what God is saying, you know, through the Apostle Paul, through established context in the Word. And that's, yeah, it's give up these rights. And as hard as, as a, is a hard thing in 2020 to say, you know, you have so much women empowerment. And some of these are, are good things that, that push things in the right way. But I think it's been used in a negative way in the church. And it's just really challenging for some people to see and get past this because of everything we've seen, you know, in the past probably 20 years yes. pushed at us from a, from a demonic almost standpoint of this is not the family order. This is, this is how it should be. And you're, you're a bigot if you think men should be a leader in their home and it's not equal. And we've just been pushed that and pushed that. But mm. Paul's saying, I give all this up and I'm going to do what God says. And I'm going to even go above and beyond that and look at his ministry. Look at mm. we're touched now by the Holy Spirit through the writings of yes. Paul. And we're living, living in a culture here in America. Everything is about our rights and we demand our rights. And so that culture is consuming us. And at the same time, we're trying to, the, the principles of our culture is destroying the family, redefining the family. And it's incredible in a negative standpoint of what is happening to the family. And no society can withstand the destruction of a biblical family. And so as we look at the family unit being destroyed, as we look at um, wives and moms taken out of the home, as we look at these principles being destroyed in the home and also in the church, we're heading down a road to destruction. The Bible should not fit into our culture. Our culture should be defined by biblical principles. And this is where you and I are in studying God's Word. I don't want my culture and to keep my culture and the Bible has to fit into my culture. I want everything within my culture to be challenged by God's Word. And if there's something wrong within my culture, I want it to be out of my life. And I want God's Word to be established in my heart. In my heart that I will not sin against Him. And this principle is a biblical principle. The principle is scriptural. The cultural expression of it changes from time to time within different cultures. But the principle is true. For example, dress modestly. That is the principle. How that's understood from culture to culture can change a little bit. From India to America in the sense one thing in India may be considered appropriate that would not be appropriate here and vice versa. There's some variation within the expression of it, but the principle is true. And with the principle that he is applying here to Corinth is the same principle that should be true for us in America in 2020. And let's never forget that. And Alan, we're at 51 minutes, and I think we probably need to stop in verse 16. And then we'll pick it up the next time. I think this is such a relevant issue. And I'll lose friends over this. I'll have churches that will not invite me because I taught this today. But don't fight with me. Fight with Paul, who is following the Word of God, I believe, who is saying, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Let there be a struggle. Yes, you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you really mad, but it will set you free. Paul loved this church. Paul wept over the church of Corinth, and he had nothing but 
good intention to see them grow in the Lord. So for him to bring this, you know, hard message for you to bring it, you know, and I think that's that's the place he's coming from. I know that's the place you're coming from, we're coming from on this podcast. And, and I think, like we said earlier, this is because Paul saw the power in following God's design, God's mm-hmm. principles, and saw that the doors that would open, the power that you would have when you submitted to Christ's will in your life. And whatever Christ shows you through his word that looks like doing that, he saw the beauty in that, and he was willing to have the hard conversation and to lose the friend and to get maybe some people in Corinth mad at him. Um, he didn't care because he knew what would happen when you followed this. And that's that's the heart he's coming from, and I think that is the heart we're coming from. Yes. It's not a you're wrong, you need to do this this way. This is God's way, and his word showing this, and you decide it for yourself, but you have to preach God's word. We have to say God's word on these messages and not shy away from it regardless of the outcome right and the principle again i'm going to say the principle Mm -hmm. is what we're preaching the cultural expression hair does not have the same significance today in modern day america it probably has a little bit to do with it you can see a little bit of significance but the principle is there that man is the head of woman and to keep that principle. In that day, the hair was very significant in that principle. May not have the same significance here, but if you go over into Asia, to Southern Asia, it still has the same significance. You can see that cultural understanding very, very clear there in a place like India. In America, it doesn't have the same significance, but the principle is established, and we cannot throw away the principle. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together. And Lord, we pray that your word that is being taught and proclaimed, that everything that represents you, Lord, that it will touch the hearts of everyone that is listening. And Lord, let there be conviction upon everyone that is speaking, everyone that is listening, and let Christ be glorified and let the body of the Messiah be edified and everything is for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'd like to learn more about IGM or have any questions about this podcast, feel free to reach out to us at info at integritygm.com and connect with us on Instagram at integrity underscore global and Facebook at Integrity Global Missions. If you like our podcast, please share it and leave a review. Thank you for listening. Have a blessed day.